Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 13th of February 2022, 11 o'clock service. Tim Davis speaking in the series, King David, the Good, the Bad and the Ugly, the Adulterous Murderer. Yeah, when I was last up here uh, in our series of David, the Good, the Bad and the Ugly, uh, I was speaking on David the Outlaw uh, and about how despite it being a fairly bad and ugly time in David's life, in terms of all the things that he endured and happened to him at that time, it still seemed to bring out the good in him, the best of him. This was David trusting in God's righteousness, in God's faithfulness, a man after God's own heart, a humble servant of God. So what are your initial thoughts when you see the title, David, the adulterous murderer? Do you think something might have changed in David's character by now? Uh, I have to say my first thoughts were, should it be David the adulterous murderer or David the murderous adulterer? Um, because, to be honest, um, David, in addition to Bathsheba, had seven wives, so um, it was something of a multiple adulterer, uh, but not necessarily a multiple murderer. Um, obviously, we're not counting the thousands of people who slayed in battle, uh, and we're definitely not getting into a discussion on whether killing people in battle in the Bible in general is permitted or not, but that's for another sermon series or not. Um, but, you know, that's quite a damning title to give to someone, isn't it? An adulterous murderer. Um, it sounds like the sort of person you usually find God smiting in the Bible. I'm fairly certain people have died in the Bible for a lot less heinous crimes than David's. And as we heard in our reading, as we'll explore uh, later this morning, David's behavior and actions are dreadful. And yet, I did have to ask myself, does the Bible seem to want to gloss over this, almost whitewash David's reputation and legacy? It says, one of the other readings we heard, um, for David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Um, it's almost like a little afterthought quickly added on, isn't it? Um, and I hope that nobody notices. You know, was David really so bad, so ugly? Mm, ignore that little thing there. But we're going to look at exactly what it was that David did. But first of all, um, may not know, but I don't know if anyone's aware of the fairly troubling, terrible news that we heard uh, in the last few days. Uh, that's right, the Australian soap opera Neighbours faces the prospect of being of ending completely after Channel 5 confirmed it would not be continuing to air the show after this summer. Um, why am I talking about Neighbours? Well, um, those of you who were here three weeks ago uh, may remember I described the life of David uh, like being uh, an epic movie uh, and certainly one that deserved a better adaptation than the um, frankly awful 1985 movie, King David, starring Richard Gere in the lead role. Um, but in this particular episode, this David and Bathsheba episode, for me, I, I feel this is not epic movie. This is pure soap opera. And you'll see why I think that as we look at the passage. Uh, but what we'll also see, I think, is how David's actions completely contrast those that we've looked at previously and in particular how they mirror almost those of Saul when he was persecuting David. Now, the story of David and Bathsheba, I think, is a classic tale of 
power corrupting people, of finding yourself able to do literally whatever you want because no one's going to challenge you. At the start of the passage, we're told it's springtime, and that means one thing, go to war. Uh, apparently, it was the in thing at the time. You know, ooh, first day of spring, what should I do? And I plant my fruit and veg for the summer and uh, wind the clocks forwards an hour or adjust the sundial a few degrees and uh, let's get the lambs ready, you know, so get the ewes ready for their lambing. And uh, what's the other thing we've got to do first day of spring? That's right, go and slaughter the Amalekites. Let's go, yeah. Um, and of course, this is David. He's a legendary warrior king whom God gave victory to in all of his battles. He's the king. He should be leading his armies at the, on the front line, striking fear into the hearts of all their enemies. But instead, he does the opposite. He stays behind in Jerusalem, completely shirking his duty. A complete change from this man we saw earlier, who trusted God to lead him in battle. And so David finds himself strolling around his palace, probably quite bored because no one else is around. All his friends are off having their great time on the battlefield. And distracted, he gazes upon this beautiful woman bathing. Um, now, as I mentioned earlier in my previous talk, that the film King David uh, was pretty awful and really unmemorable. Not strictly true. There is one scene, which when I saw this as part of my biblical studies course many, many years ago, always stayed with me. And it's that scene of David spying on Bathsheba, bathing. Um, because the director clearly thought he needed to appeal to a certain demographic. So there I am, in, surrounded by lots of Christians, in this floor at Sheffield University, uh, in the lecture theatres, watching this biblical epic. And it suddenly goes all kind of soft-core erotica when it comes to Bathsheba's bathing. Uh, definitely not what you expected to see in something that's meant to be a biblical epic. It was more like something you'd see in Channel 5 when it launched back in the late 90s, late at night. Um, so no, if you've got a teenage son or grandson who suddenly says, can I watch King David? It may not be for the most honest of kind of like, wanting to watch a biblical film. Just saying. Um, and, you know, I'd love to see Veggie Tales try and tackle that episode of David and Bathsheba. <laughs> I really wouldn't, actually. No, I really wouldn't. Not, no. But anyway... So we've got this David. And then remember, this was David who refused the offer of the king's daughter's hand in marriage. David, you know, when he's even got a young, beautiful woman offered up to him to a plate, he says, no, I must do what's right. Here he is, having become king himself and abusing the power and status that's been given him. Instead of seeking to do God's will and lead the people of God as intended, he gives in to his own selfish desires, wants, urges. He already has half a dozen or so wives. But, you know, he's the king. If he wants an encounter with another one of his loyal subjects, who's going to stop him? And the result of this sordid episode is this, I guess you'd call it scandalous, and unexpected and challenging pregnancy that cannot be ignored. It's not going to go away. David's got to deal with it. And so he tries to fix things. And this, to me, is where it feels like a classic soap opera plot. The forbidden desire between two characters. The passionate encounter. The post-encounter regret. The consequences of said encounter. And the inevitable, messy, tangled web of deceit, lies, and disastrous attempts to try and fix the problem that ensues. 
think I'm exaggerating? Well, you know, I think to me this seems like classic EastEnders, but uh, just going back to Neighbours, whilst it's a blow that Neighbours may no longer be on our screens for much longer, we can at least take heart that that other uh, staple of Aussie soap opera addiction, Home and Away, is due to remain on our TV schedules for the time being. And like many people of my sort of age, uh, I'm sure some of you would have had children who are my sort of age as well, you may forced to have to watch this at tea times back in the late 80s. Uh, I used to watch Home and Away religiously every day. I'd come home from school, Home and Away Neighbours, that was the routine. Mum saying, can you help lay the table? Home and Away Neighbours, Home and Away Neighbours. Um, and um, some of you, those of you of a certain age, may remember some of the characters from Home and Away. Uh, there was Frank and Bobby, two very well-known popular characters. Uh, but there was also this third character, Rue, from the early episodes. And there was this bit of a love triangle going on. Uh, in the early beginning stages of um, Home and Away, Rue and Frank were actually in a relationship. Uh, and then Rue managed to get pregnant by somebody else, but doesn't want to have to deal with kind of the fallout from that. So she tries to convince Frank that actually he's the father. But by this stage, Frank and Rue have kind of gone off each other a bit, and Frank's more interested in Bobby. And so you've got this awful kind of love triangle thing going on, and all the while Rue trying to manipulate it to convince Frank that he's actually the father of Bateman, it's not him. And so this kind of convoluted thing, it doesn't end well, is all I can say. Reminds me of what David's trying to do, trying to convince someone else that they're the father of a child that's actually his. I can picture him and Bathsheba almost kind of going crazy when she goes to speak to him, when they realize this dreadful situation they've got themselves into. You know, David going, oh, how did this happen? Bathsheba saying, I think you know perfectly well how this happened. The problem is, what are you going to do about it? And David thinking, well, normally I'd just marry the girl, you know. Bathsheba going, yes, but I'm already married. And David thinking, okay, there's only one thing for it. You've got to make Uriah think he's the father. Um, um, okay, yeah. You go home, uh, sip on that nice dress you've got, and I'll get Uriah on a furlough from the battle, and we'll send him back, and uh, well, hey, boom, problem solved. So that's what he does. He calls Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, back from his springtime battle royale, has a quick friendly chat with him, and then tells him to take some time off and go home to wash his feet. Uh, a slightly odd double entendre or euphemism that hasn't really survived the present day. I can't think why. Um, except Uriah doesn't do that. He doesn't go home to wash his feet. He's still on a military campaign. He's been tasked with protecting the people of Israel and of Judah and the Ark of the Covenant. And to do that, you needed to remain pure, which meant abstaining from sexual intercourse. If you can remember back to a few weeks ago, we heard of David when he was fleeing from Saul, arriving at a place called Nob, and the priest there giving David and his men the sacramental bread that had been set aside for the offering. And the only reason he was willing to give it to David and his men was because they were still in battle mode. They were remaining pure and abstaining from sex. In contrast, it's now David behaving in a completely opposite manner and this blameless victim, Uriah, who's taken on the role of a man after God's own heart. So this plan doesn't work, but David still perseveres. You think, okay, next track. Let, let's get Uriah drunk, make him feel a bit randy. Off he goes for a bit of washing his feet with his wife, and hooray, there we go, brilliant. But Uriah doesn't do that. He remains with his fellow soldiers. He accepts the king's hospitality. It would be an insult not to. He drinks with him, 
But he still remembers what his duties are, what he's been called to do. And he observes the correct way to behave. And so David, by this stage, is realizing that his not-so-cunning plan to cover up this adultery is not going to work. You know, I wanted to give David credit for at least trying to fix things, for trying to spare Uriah the pain and embarrassment and humiliation that would have been the result of discovering this affair and the result of it. But at no point does does David ever take a moment to stop and realize he's done a terrible thing and turn to God and ask for his forgiveness and his guidance and be willing to accept the resulting punishment or consequences. When Saul was attempting to have David killed, one of the first things he tried to do was send David into a fierce conflict with the Philistines. And this was a conflict which Saul himself had fanned the flames of deliberately so that David would surely be killed by the Philistines. But the Lord was with David, not with Saul, and David defeated the enemy. Fast forward several years, and now we've got David becoming this unhinged, selfish king. He instructs Uriah to be sent to the front line of the battle where the fighting is fiercest and then abandoned effectively, so he's surely killed. Uriah even has to unwittingly deliver the letter with these instructions to the commander of the army. He hand-delivers his own death sentence and is subsequently killed, along with many other innocent men. This is premeditated murder by David. And what does he do? He then takes Bathsheba as his own wife. How do we reconcile this episode with the legacy of David in the rest of the Bible? This greatest king that Israel ever had. This one they say he was blameless apart from this little bit. You must feel like if the writers really wanted to just preserve this pure blameless image of David, they just have overlooked, omitted this episode. Why is it here in the Bible still? The last verse of chapter 11 says this, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. That's the only time God is mentioned in this passage. I think that's quite telling, that in in this dreadful episode in David's life, God is absent from everything that David is doing, choosing to do, his thoughts and his actions. He doesn't involve God in any of them. Now, in recent years, there have been several cases of wealthy, powerful men being brought to account for their past actions, where they've taken advantage of others and abused others. Harvey Weinstein is a prime example of this, of someone who thought they could do whatever they wanted, simply because they had the power. A few years earlier, now we seem to have this kind of generic response when men like this were accused and found out of committing these awful things, simply to say, I couldn't help it, I'm a sex addict, really, I'm as much a victim here as them. But thankfully, we wouldn't accept that. We'd say that may well be the case, but you are still accountable for the terrible things you've done and you will be answerable for them. The story of David and Bathsheba serves as a reminder that when we stop putting God at the center of our lives 
and instead think it's okay just to do whatever we like, regardless of the consequences, then things can and do go very wrong. This episode of David's life is deeply unsettling. And yet, there is this hope of redemption. The following chapter, chapter 12, um, has the prophet Nathan rebuking David for his actions. He tells David the story of a man who behaved appallingly. And David is outraged, saying, whoever this was, he should be punished severely. And then Nathan points out that it's David's own actions that he's describing. And David realizes the scale of his iniquity and sin. He confesses his sin with great conviction. He knows that under the law, he deserves to be put to death. And yet God had also promised to make him the ancestor of the Messiah. And so God still punishes him, but not by putting David to death, but by having the son that Bathsheba is due to give birth to die. And David knows that this is what the Lord is planning to do. And yet he still pleads with God to spare the child's life. He fasts, he prays fervently. And yet when God does not relent and the child dies, David gets up and he goes to the temple and he worships God. God also promises that there will be more trouble and disaster in David's household still to come. And we're going to hear more about that over the next couple of weeks. But David's heart had returned to God. And God keeps his covenant promise to David that from his descendants shall come the Messiah, Jesus Christ. David's contrition is genuine. And perhaps that's why we have that unusual verse later in 1 Kings 15. You know, it's not that we're trying to whitewash David's reputation but that he was a flawed person who messed up, realized it, and did his best to once again be a man after God's own heart. We heard from the start uh, in the verses of 1 Kings chapter 2, David's instructions to his son Solomon. David had experienced the consequences of when his actions were not in observance of what the Lord required, and so he was desperate to impart this to the heir of his throne. Unfortunately, they go on uh, to be ignored, but that's for another um, sermon series. So what can we learn from all this? Well, perhaps the first thing we can do is look to how things are in current events. I'm indebted to uh, Guy Brandon from the Jubilee Centre for some of these thoughts. You know, we talk of David as a flawed leader whom God used. But if we think about it, we are so not short of flawed leaders in our own time, are we? If there is anything the last few years have taught us, it's that those in public life have plenty of skeletons in their closets. Cash for questions, cash for access, awarding public contracts through nepotism, affairs, lockdown parties. You know, every day we read more and more news stories about such salacious behaviour, and all too eagerly they can be lapped up. It's true, we love our idols, but I think we prefer them fallen quite often. Perhaps there are a few lessons we can learn from David's life, both for ourselves and for the way that we treat key figures in public life, be they religious, political or cultural leaders. Firstly, that whatever crimes David 
had done. He was ready to admit his faults when they were pointed out to him, and he tried to make atonement for them. When he did repent, God accepted it. Today, genuine repentance seems to be the least um, thought that people want to try and make happen. It comes a far second to the option of just denying wrongdoing altogether. Like, no, no, I didn't do that, it wasn't me, you've got it wrong. Or trying to redefine morality to suit themselves. There may be that carefully stage-managed, sincere-looking apology when you realise you actually have to fess up. Or that, even worse, non-apology when you say, I'm sorry if people were offended by something I did. I didn't realise I was going to cause offence. I'm sorry for any offence that people caught for something I didn't think was meant to cause offence. Sorry, not sorry, basically. But secondly, relating to this willingness to repent, is that one of the reasons of, for God's patience with David may be that his crimes never included idolatry. Unlike most of Israel's kings, David was still fully devoted to the Lord. He was guilty of a horrible, serious series of sins. But David let God be God, and he always came back to God when he strayed. And lastly, the patience and forgiveness that God shows David is profoundly challenging to us. We want to be angry about what David has done, yet we see God forgiving him. When our own leaders fail, we're far more prepared to just want to wash our hands of them or hold it against them forever. A single serious sin can be enough to end an otherwise promising career. Lots and lots of politicians we can think of have never come back from sexual, financial, or criminal errors of judgment and actions. Fewer still religious ministers. But an accusation sometimes leveled at us is that God forgives, but Christians don't. And without trivializing any of these awful sins, can we find ways to rehabilitate fallen leaders rather than just writing them off? David had to live with the consequences of his actions, which were severe. But God is continually faithful to his promise to David. He never withdraws his spirit from him as he did with Saul. And so in this bad, ugly episode of David's life, we still do see the good in action. But the last one I want to leave us with is this. Now, it's commonplace to use this episode of David's life as an example of how God used flawed people in the Bible for his purpose. But of course, the reality is we're all flawed. God only has flawed people to use for his purpose. Each and every one of us. And it's never too late for God to do something meaningful in your life and with your life and in the lives of those around you. Unexpectedly so. So if you've been ever feeling absent from God, then take time to talk to him today, to reconnect and say, here I am, imperfect, flawed, yet loved by you and ready to live my life with a purpose that you give me. Send me, Lord. Lord.